You're listening to Upstream, the software supply chain security podcast. Brought to you by Encore. Hi there and welcome. I'm Kim Wines, host of Upstream, a podcast for those curious about the security of the software supply chain. In each episode, we talk with experts, practitioners, and thought leaders about concrete ideas and approaches to improve software supply chain security. This podcast is for everyone, both inside and outside the world of security. On this show, we highlight ways we can work together to protect the software that we all depend on. Josh Bressers, meeting that protection mission absolutely requires great communication. It absolutely does, Kim. I think communication between everyone in the security and the software industry in general is one of those things that just you can't stress how important it is. There are an enormous number of failures that we could talk about all because of communication. And so I think it's enormously important and obviously knowing where we've been is so very important to innovating for where we're going in the future. Well, Josh, we're lucky today to have an industry luminary and a great communicator with us on the podcast. Steve O'Grady is fluent in the language and culture of developers. He's the principal analyst and co-founder of Redmonk, the developer-focused industry analyst firm, and the author of the book, The New Kingmakers, How Developers Conquered the World. And he joins us from the great state of Maine. Welcome to Upstream, Steve. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, Steve, I've heard that in Maine, sometimes people say you can't get there from here. Is that the right (laughs) accent? Uh, Pretty close. Uh, Not being a native of the state, I can't duplicate it, but that's as close as I can get. Let's put it that way. Okay. Well, then I don't feel like completely embarrassed. (laughs) So I recently heard you refer to the software supply chain as the soft underbelly of organizations. And I know that we agree that securing the supply chain is the destination. That's where we're going. So how ready are organizations to make the trip and how do they get there from here? Uh, How ready are they? I think you know, the, the, I'll give a, a sort of standard analyst or consultant's answer, which is it depends. Um, it depends <laughs> yeah, on the organization. Uh, what we have found and the sort of justification of the, the rationalization for the soft underbelly comment is that, um, you know, for many years, the, the sort of primary attack surface was the production systems once they get out to, you know, production. So I'm going to go attack, you know, sort of anything front facing, forward facing, et cetera. And that obviously is still sort of a a focus of attack. But what we've seen sort of in in recent years are attackers sort of get more creative and, you know, sort of understand, all right, if I can infiltrate some of the build processes themselves, I can potentially do even more damage by spreading, you know, sort of myself, you know, leveraging distribution mechanisms and, uh, and so on to my benefit as sort of as an attacker. So when... When we talk to organizations, I guess the, the short answer to the question is, is that they're kind of all over the map, right? You know, you have customers who are still stuck in that I must protect the production systems mindset and everything else is secondary. And then you have, you know, sort of customers that look at, you know, things like the, the solar winds, the high profile solar winds vulnerability and just are, you know, they're up at night every night, you know, sort of worrying about attacks of that nature. So I wish I could give you a better answer, but I think the answer is it really depends because the the first step is sort of understanding that this is a problem um, uh, before you can sort of get around to try to attack it. I mean, I like that, though. I think that makes a lot of sense because if you look at kind of the history of the security universe, 
it's historically always been kind of cat and mouse where the defenders are chasing the attackers. And I think we've reached a, a point where the attackers have new attacks. And so now it's time for the defenders to adjust accordingly, right? That's exactly right. Well, and didn't cloud change this idea of just worry about the production systems because we realize there's no perimeter anymore. The perimeter is gone. Yeah, the perimeter is gone. You know, and I think, you know, one of the other pieces here is just that the the nature of how we build applications today is just a lot different, right? Um, in other words, I'm dating myself here, but another, like, you know, when, when I was coming up, we had to build most of the stuff ourselves, right? Um, you know, I, obviously you, you sort of pick up commercial frameworks wherever you can and, you know, sort of rely on, on sort of folks that have gone before you. But a lot of it was just, all right, you know, we need to build X and so we'll go, we'll go do that. And today, you know, the good news is that there's this huge array of resources, both cloud, as Kim mentions, um, you know, from, a, from an infrastructure standpoint, but on the software side as well, there's tons of projects, libraries, you know, frameworks, et cetera, that can be leveraged. But this, this sort of growing list of dependencies, you know, is at once something that will help you move more quickly and improve your development velocity, but also introduces this cascading list of new, you know, sort of potential entry points for attackers. So... Yeah, I think part of it is you know, certainly in the nature of how the infrastructure itself has changed. But a lot of it, as I said, is just you know the, the nature of, of the software that we're leveraging to build this stuff. All right, Steve. So I guess the next question, the, the thing I always hear when I'm discussing the amount of open source everyone is using is I think one of the natural conclusions people will jump to is, well, I just need to use less. I'm curious on your thoughts for that particular question. Yeah, uh, you, you do hear that from time to time, less, I think, than we would have, say, five or 10 years ago, right? Um, because if you go back, if you go back a little ways, there was a sort of widespread perception in the industry that open source was inherently less secure than commercial alternatives. Yes. And that was the sort of security by obscurity, you know, sort of uh, axiom. And I think what we found is, is that there have been plenty of very high profile commercial vulnerabilities over time. And, you know, people are basically realizing at this point that whether it's open source or not is not the issue. In some cases, you can make the argument that the rigor that is applied to some of the open source projects coming as they do from the sort of engineers of which come from many different organizations and have to find a way to systematically build things together. That's often a more rigorous process than you will see from some commercial organizations. So I think in some, if not many cases, the open source is probably more secure by design. But basically, the, the net is, is that all software has vulnerabilities, whether it's open source or not. So, you know, when, when we hear that, and like I said, we hear that, I think, less today than we would have you know, sort of maybe 10 years ago. But when we hear that, you know, part of what we're trying to point out is by limiting your use of open source, you're basically cutting yourself off from a tremendous boon from a developmental standpoint for basically no gain from a security standpoint. You're going to nice. do the work yourself, but it's not going to be any more secure than the open source that you would have used. Yeah. And the, the analogy I used, this is actually a recent conversation. It was a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to somebody about this. And, you know, Kim, you, you sort of mentioned the cloud earlier. So there's an analogy, I think, that's at work here, which is, you know, in the early days of cloud, there was this impression that, you know, sort of cloud was somehow inherently less secure than enterprise infrastructure. We had to sort of gently ask some enterprises, like, do you? Do you think you employ the kinds of people that work for the large clouds and sort of work on this full time? In some cases, the answer might be yes, but in most cases, the answer is no. So, you know, without getting into you know, sort of, 
in a sort of binary, you know, sort of unequivocal, one is more secure than the other. I think it's it's very fair to say that you can have secure cloud, you can have secure private infrastructure, but you're never going to determine which is which by knowing if it's on or off-prem. And the same is true for open source. Is there insecure open source software? Absolutely. But is there insecure commercial software? You bet. So yeah, you're never gonna you're never gonna save yourself by sort of lopping off one huge you know, sort of area of software. So you mentioned the fact that we're developing software differently now than we used to back in the old days. And right. one of the things that you've talked about a lot is the frictionless developer experience. It's something you're pretty passionate about. You've yep. written blogs about it, articles about it. Can you explain the concept and give some background on what improvements you think need to be made in this area? Sure. Yeah. So the, you know, as you, as you say, I've, I've written quite extensively about this. If anybody wants the Google developer experience gap, you'll, you'll find a lot of it. But the, the short version of the argument is this, which is, <clears throat> as we've talked about already, uh, we live in a world where developers have access to essentially an infinite resources, uh, an infinite number of resources, right? You know, from cloud infrastructure to managed for, you know, database services to, um, libraries, you know, open source libraries, every shape and size, frameworks, and, and on and on and on, right? So on the one hand, it's never, you know, there's never been a better time to be a developer because you have this huge um, array of tools at your disposal. But the flip side of that is, is that trying to sift through and pick out which ones you want, then trying to pick out how to integrate them, trying to operate them, secure them, manage them over time is an enormous task, right? And so that gets to, to what we refer to as the gap. Um, and, you know, what we're, what we're pushing for, and, you know, to be, you know, to essentially to our, to our delight, I guess is the simplest way to put it, the industry really seems to be taking this seriously and moving in this direction, which is just trying to think of, all right, if I'm, if I'm building software, if I'm offering services, whatever you know, sort of my, my given role as a vendor might be, what is the experience of using this like? Not just, hey, I bring, you know, sort of X capabilities to the table. What else gets used, right? What, you know, what am I used on top of? What, am I, uh, what is used alongside of my software? What's used on top of my software? And what's the experience of using those together? You know, because the, you know, in the original developer experience gap uh, piece, the analogy that I used there was the iPhone, Right. So in other words, you have on a given iPhone, you have a phone app and you have a music app, among others. And, you know, when you're listening to music and you get a phone call, music fades out, you pick up your call. When you're done, you hang up, music fades back in. So basically, that's the ideal. Right. Which is that we have these different pieces of software that have been, you know, we've thought about the experience of using them together. But unfortunately, the industry right now is still, you know, very much in a pre pre iPhone state. Right. Where everyone has their you know, they're given product service API, whatever it might be. And, you know, how all that stuff gets pieced together, what the experience is like of using it together is kind of uh, left to the developer to figure out, which is not ideal. I like this analogy because I think, especially in the security world, there's this attitude of perfect or nothing. And mm -hmm. I think we forget sometimes how truly new this industry is. I mean, yep. software in general is very new. We're talking like 50, 60 years max. But I think what we think of as modern security, I mean, we're talking single digit years, which is ridiculously new. Right. Oh, for sure. And 
uh, you know, this is something I lament uh, often, you know, and this is probably not a surprise coming as a, as a history major in college, um, is that the industry has very little sense of its own history, right? So, you know, there's so many things where, you know, we're like, hey, we've, we've seen this pattern before. We've seen this play out. I can tell you how this is going to end. And there's just, um, there's not a lot of history, as you point out. It's a, it's a very young industry. But, you know, in spite of that, there are, there are many, many lessons which, um, you know, we seem, we seem doomed to, to uh, keep learning, as uh, Santiana said. Yes. Well, I like to call these the daily annoyances, you know, the things that when you're using a piece of technology or software that just drive you crazy every time. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, it's not just about personal annoyance. It's also about development velocity, right? Because right. if a developer is annoyed because they're having to stop or slow down or switch context, they're not as productive in doing what they do best and doing what their Mm -hmm. companies want them to do well, which is to deliver new capabilities at a reasonable velocity. So how do, how do APIs play into this? Cause you mentioned this idea of like every tool has its own API for its service. So Mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit. Flip side of the coin, right? In the sense that it is wonderful that we live in a world where there are so many abilities and functions available that are just an API way. So from an application developer standpoint, it's very, very easy typically and lightweight for you to go out and leverage these to do things that would just take you longer, you know, that you would have to go sort of figure out and build yourself. Um, so that's the one side of the coin. But on the flip side, as I said before, you know, it's... Um, uh, I don't know if anybody sort of listening was a was a um, uh, philosophy major, but you know, there's um, Immanuel Kant as the categorical imperative, right? And I won't go into to everything that's that's associated with that, but basically, the the easiest way to explain that is is that if one person litters, it's not a big deal. If everybody litters, that is a big deal, right? And that's a sort of simple way to distill that down. And that's ultimately what we have from an API standpoint, which is, you know, hey, you have one or two of these, great, I can do, you know, sort of X, Y, or Z. Um, but then what happens when I have a dozen or two dozen or, you know, a hundred, right? Then it becomes much more difficult to manage. And, you know, I, I remember many years ago when I was talking to a large European bank and they were one of the first to go down the, the VMware path for infrastructure. And they had, you know, I had talked to them and said, you know, hey, how's, how's this process going? And they said, well, it's going okay. And I said, that doesn't sound that great. And they said, no, no, you know, look, we're, we're seeing the benefits that we, we wanted, but there's a big difference for us in terms of managing 500 physical machines versus 5,000 virtual ones, right? And that's what we're seeing in the API world right now, right? In the sense of, like I said, it's a wonderful thing that all these different services and functions are, are just an API way, but that process begins to, you know, you, you begin having difficulties in scaling that process, you know, even in prosaic things like, okay, you know, how do I, how do I select them? How do I pick one from another, right? How do I, you know, sort of determine which of these is going to be the best option for me moving forward? And then, you know, you get into the logistical concerns in terms of, right, how are they integrated? You know, who's managing what, where do the responsibilities lie, support and, and sort of otherwise. So yeah, it's um, very much a, you know, flip sides of the same coin. Um, type of situation. I, I, I want to turn this around on you, Steve, a little bit. And I, I love the message of at scale because I think that's something we often forget where it's easy to do something on my laptop. It's hard to do something a million times. Now, if we think about the supply chain, I think 
we historically had this view of I'm deploying one application. But once we start kind of bringing all the software supply chain just process into it all, now I realize I don't have one application. I have 7,000 open source dependencies I'm actually trying to manage. And that yep. changes the conversation immensely because yeah. we go from one to thousands to potentially millions in some cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's, and that's part of it, right. Is that, um, you know, what we're seeing are, you know, emerging questions in terms of like, okay, you know, in, uh, open source is, is tangibly provably delivering me results in terms of how quickly I'm able to move. Right. Which is at least from, from all the conversations we have, it's almost the, you know, the only thing that enterprises care about at this point is just raw velocity. So, you know, that's great, but they are increasingly facing questions in terms of, okay, well, who's responsible for what? And if there's a problem with this, what's the, what's the mitigation here? What's the process and so on? So, you know, there's a lot of different ways that organizations are looking at that, right? They're looking at, all right, sort of who are new commercial suppliers? In many cases, they're punting entirely and saying, all right, I'm going to go with a managed service and make that some other vendor's responsibility. So there's no sort of single way to address this, but it is absolutely a growing concern for enterprises and frankly, appropriately so um, because yeah, it is, it's a, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have all of this um, capability sort of at your fingertips, but then, you know, determining, you know, it's the, it's the old line from Ghostbusters, like who are you going to call when, you know, something, something goes south, right? You have a yes. log for shell and then, oh my God, okay, what am I doing now? And, you know, who's responsible for this? <laughs> Are you offering up your phone number, Steve? <laughs> no, no, certainly not. No, uh, as somebody who uh, my, my, um, my basement flooded last weekend and I had that exact same process where it was like, who, who do I call for this? Like, yeah, who's responsible? Like, you know, so it, yeah, I, I have full sympathy for the, for the enterprises going through this, but it is, you know, very much a, um, uh, you know, it's a process of trying to determine, you know, cost benefit, right? What can I use and, and how do I manage responsibly um, the, you know, the software that we're using and make sure that, you know, we have a process for mitigation and remediation if necessary. You're listening to Upstream, the software supply chain security podcast. We're speaking with Steve O'Grady, principal analyst and co-founder of Redmonk. So, Steve, we've heard your colleague, Kellyanne Fitzpatrick, refer to software security as a journey. So do you subscribe to that line of thinking? Uh, and what do you think is around the corner on that journey? I absolutely think it's a journey. I think the the sort of only qualification I'll throw in there is, is that I don't think it's a journey with a destination. I don't think you ever get there. I don't think you ever get to a point where it's like, all right, we're done. You know, we've arrived. Everything is everything is secure now. So, you know, that's the only part of the analogy that I would sort of quibble with in sort of in a minor way. But it's you know, basically, this is one of the phrases we use at Red Monk a lot is, you know, sort of let's make better mistakes tomorrow. Right? <laughs> I like and that. I like that. That, that is, awesome. I think, one of the best ways. It's, it's from an old friend of mine who unfortunately passed away, Alex King, used to say it all the time. That, to me, I think encapsulates what organizations should be trying to think about as they're on this journey. Because as we talked about, you're never going to get there. And what you want is the ability to make okay, I'm a little bit better than I was yesterday. I'm a little bit better than I was the day before that. And it is very much incremental progress, but it is, you know, Josh used the, the sort of cat and mouse analogy before. That's what it is. It's a game. The game is never going to be stopped playing. So you need to essentially be on your game, as it were, 
and make sure that you are trying to keep up with folks trying new and creative attacks. As far as what's coming around the corner, you know, I think the, the biggest thing I think for me that organizations are trying to figure out is actually what we just talked about, right? Is trying to figure out, all right, for the entirety of my software portfolio, who's responsible for what? If I have an issue with some commercially backed software, great, I call them. If it's some other dependency that I'm managing, what's my process? What does that look like? And how does this change or not my ability to leverage certain pieces? So really what I see is sort of the, I don't know, the, the critical part of the journey that a lot of organizations are, are going through right now is just that, you know, is realizing, oh, wow, we're using a lot of this. It's offering us these, again, tangible, provable benefits, which is great. But on the cost side of the ledger, how do I balance that, right? How do I figure out sort of what, you know, who's responsible for what, ultimately? I, one good piece of news, I think, is in talking to a lot of customers and prospects in the last few months in the post Log4J world, how many people have showed up and said, hey, we didn't have a huge impact from Log4J or we were able to reasonably mitigate it, but yep. it was a wake up call for us that we need to do something different or do something better. We're wanting to be more proactive. We're wanting to get ahead of it. So I think that's a positive development that people are taking these, they don't have to wait till everything blows up around them. They're mm -hmm. taking this as an opportunity to, what did you say? Make better mistakes tomorrow. Make better mistakes tomorrow, that's right. Yeah, I think um, we're having some of those same conversations where basically it's, um, I'm trying to think of who it was. Anyhow, it, it was it was a large enterprise. Basically said, this is, this is our second chance, right? We didn't get hit this time. Um, and but this is a wake up call and, and we need to change our behaviors. Otherwise, it's basically inevitable that one of these things is going to catch us. And I mean, frankly, it may be inevitable you know, for a lot of organizations, even if they are you know, sort of on their game and, and doing what they need to do, because you know, software being software, it's going to have you know, sort of vulnerabilities in it. Um, but, you know, the, the trick is basically to try to uh, try to mitigate as best you can. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's it's a uh, it's a uh, let, let's just say it's it's interesting to talk to organizations about this now in terms of how they look at it. And, you know, every single one of these is a life changing moment, you know, for some organization, you know, where or a timeline changing moment, I don't, you know, events are corporations are people. So um, I shouldn't say life changing. But anyway, it changes the way they do things um, in, in big ways because, you know, um, you know, we've already talked, you know, sort of about a couple of them and each one of these that comes along, you know, turns, you know, some other you know, sort of subset of enterprises into believers that, okay, you know, this, whatever this sort of new big vulnerability is, we got lucky, we might not get lucky another time and we need to change our behavior accordingly. So as a uh, software security is becoming... Uh, front and center and software supply chain security is sort of raising in focus and awareness for companies. The lines between security teams and technical teams have become more blurry. And maybe that's good. Maybe we're talking collaboration here. But what is the role of the software security practitioner and how has that shifted uh, based on where we're at in these new development approaches? I think what we found, you know, sort of in the macro sense over the last, I don't know, I'd have to sort of go back and, and look to try to date it precisely. But 
you know, certainly over the last you know, sort of number of years is that the, you know, we saw this with DevOps and, you know, we're seeing this in, in many other categories as well. Basically, the, the more that we have these artificial bright lines, you know, between different areas of an org, right, whether that's Dev and Ops, Dev and Security, you know, sort of on and on Dev and, and sort of the data side of the house, um, you know, the more difficult it is to communicate, the more difficult it is to operate at velocity and operate in a way that's efficient. So, you know, certainly what we've seen in recent years in the security space specifically is softening of that bright line, right? So in other words, you know, to the, the common nomenclature is shift left. So in other words, rather than this was certainly the case when I, you know, when I was a developer, you know, you went through, you built something and then after the fact, security team came in and told you how you did everything wrong. And so on. I was like, this would have been great to know weeks ago, you know, before we're sort of coming up on a deadline. So, you know, we're beginning to see organizations realize that the earlier they can introduce that in the process, the better. The challenge is, is that my, my um, colleague Rachel had a great piece on this a little while ago. The challenge is, is that, you know, what you see in some organizations is enterprises try to then put all of the burdens on developers. And it's like, yeah, you know, they have a hard enough job already. So there's always a balance there in terms of we need to shift left, but we need to shift left in a way that is not essentially going to crush developers under some huge weight of new responsibilities, which means using tools, using, you know, sort of every resource at your disposal to simplify things, keep them, keep them manageable and make a developer's life easier. Right. And that's the, you know, essentially the whole point. And to the extent that organizations are practicing that, it makes sense. And that's what they should be doing. Much as they have erased some of the bright lines between dev and ops, you know, we'll continue to see that. Um, like I said, the difficulty is, is that in some orgs, you definitely see a, okay, you know, there's this huge weight here. I'm going to take it off security's plate and, and put that on developers. And that does not tend to be a, a terribly productive approach in my experience. Indeed. Indeed. Yes, that is one of the, I think, interesting pieces that when we talk about shift left, there's shift left doesn't just mean keep dumping more on developers. And I think sometimes we forget that in all the hype and excitement. I think a lot of people forget that. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, and I think we can help with tooling. We can help with automation, making that kind of frictionless, making the usability of the process itself, right? Like what are all the steps across all the tools that you need? Those can all help to try to reduce the burden. I will say in talking to a number of customers, they will always say as one of their first requirements when looking at security tools on the shift left side, so to speak, is I don't want to get in the way of developers. I don't want to slow developers down too much. I want to make it as easy as possible. And so we hear that from security teams and we hear that from the DevOps teams that are often integrating these platforms as well. So I think people are on the same page about that, whether we're all the way there in terms of the right tooling, the right automation, the right integration, the right processes, maybe there's always more work to be done. Make better mistakes tomorrow. Better mistakes tomorrow. So Steve O'Grady, thank you for joining us on Upstream. I'm going to try to use better mistakes tomorrow with my kids as well. <laughs> <laughs> we, we definitely use that here as well, yeah. <laughs> and thanks to everyone listening. You've come to the right place for great discussions of the big issues impacting the security of the software supply chain. Subscribe and never miss an episode. Upstream is available everywhere you get your podcasts. If you've learned something new, be sure to share this episode with friends and colleagues. And thanks for joining us on Upstream, brought to you by Encore.